What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jason Horsey for the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to James A. Davidson, the author of Hal Ashby and the Making of Harold and Maud. That's from McFarland Press. Jason here. Hi Jason, how you doing? Good, can you hear me good? Uh, yeah, fine. Thanks for agreeing to do this interview. As I said, it's going to be for the New Books Network. And um, I guess we'll just start with the uh, the genesis of the book. Like, how, how did you end up writing a book about the making of Harold and Maud? Well, it was um, about three years ago. And I'd really just always been a big fan of uh, Hal Ashby, who was the director of the movie. Um, I didn't see it when it, when it first came out, Harold and Maude, because I was 13, so I was a little bit young. But I saw it when it was first re-released in 1974, when it was given a re-release by Paramount. And so, you know, I'd been a, been a big fan of the movie. Um, I'd been, been a big fan of Hal Ashby, the director. And I really wanted to do some, uh, write something about about him and his and his career. And um, about three years ago, I found myself in a situation where I was um, working out of my home. I had a little more time on my hands. I'm not a professional writer, full-time writer. I have a video production company, actually. And uh, we closed our studio down. I was working out of my home, so I had extra time. Hmm. Uh, so I said, well, just kind of out of the blue, I said, I think the time is now. And uh, I, I settled on Harold and Maude because I thought it was a movie that um, a lot of people like myself had, had loved, you know, for many years. A lot of people had been interested in. Um, there's, of course, a cult following. The movie just had an interesting history, had an interesting several storylines behind it that I thought were were interesting and I wanted personally to find out more about um, so that all kind of uh, was was what was what brought me to it and um, I, I 
started at the Margaret Herrick Library, which is a pretty well-known place for people that um, you know do do film history and do kind of behind the scenes and making of books. Um, it's a library that's in Los Angeles. It's a uh, arm of the Academy, you know, film Academy of Film um, Arts and Sciences, and uh, it's a place that's um, uh, the studios store their film records there. They basically send over their production files and whatnot. So I started there with them, and um, they were open to me, you know, um, coming in and going through the um, files on Harold and Maude, Hal Ashby. And so I started there. Hmm. So. And did you try to talk to all the surviving members of the film production? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that's that's a challenging thing. Um, the movie has, uh, it was, came out a long time ago, of course, it's 45 years old, and uh, I did endeavor to talk to as many people as I could. It's um, a little bit difficult. Sometimes it's hard to locate people. Um, sometimes it's hard to get people to talk to you when you're located. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, so that's a, that's a challenging aspect of it. But, yeah, you know, you, you, you definitely have to do that because otherwise it, it just becomes, you know, more of a an exercise in research and that can, you know, you want to get the personal side of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I undertook um, trying to reach out to as many people as I could. Um Contacted, tried to contact Bud Court, and uh, that was didn't end up being something that that came um, to fruition. But uh, did you get any response from Bud? No, no. And uh, you mentioned I, I, in the book that he he just doesn't want to talk about Harold Moore at all. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, he'll do it, I guess, under certain circumstances, but. Uh, um, I guess it just wasn't right for him. I, I guess uh, you know I, I don't want to exactly speculate on what is, uh, but uh, I, I tried emailing several times, and I had several people who told me that uh, they would reach out to him and try to encourage him to speak with me, and I never heard from him. So that was that. <laughs> so, Too bad. You know, but you. You have to carry on, you know. You can't. You can't. Obviously, he was a major figure. Um, uh, I would have liked to have. I reached out to uh, Chuck Mulvihill, who was the producer of the movie and who was a um, longtime associate of Hal Ashby's, and uh, tried to contact him. He would. He would have been a great, a great source, but unfortunately, he was kind of non-responsive to me also. So. Um, the, that was the that was the negatives. On the positive side, I did um, uh, speak with several of the people who were in the movie. Um, Ellen Gear, who was uh, Sunshine in played um, Sunshine, one of the um, dates that Harold has. Um, we had a very nice um, back and forth about the film. She gave me a lot of nice information. Um, I spoke with Tom Skerritt, who was uh, Played the motorcycle cop, 
Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise that that was who it was until I read your book, which is remarkable. It's not remarkable because he didn't take credit, but even the fact that I didn't recognise him is remarkable because he's actually, yeah. in a way, almost the well, certainly one of the biggest celebrities in that film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's had he's had the the best career certainly um, of pretty much uh, all the people that were in in the film. Um, subsequently, I mean, he's been. Yeah many movies and, and television shows so um, you know he took time to talk with me and um, my, my wife uh, was a great help to me she helped me track down some of these some of these folks um, which is uh, really uh, helpful so uh, yeah he, he lives up in Washington State and um, he gave me a call and we had a nice conversation um, and then I, I tracked down some of the people that had smaller parts uh, I tracked down the lady who was uh, Ruth Gordon's stand-in, um, or her, not her stand-in, her stunt double. Mm. Uh, she lives up in Idaho. Um, I, I got her on the phone. We had a nice conversation. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I, was, I did everything I could to uh, get in touch with as many people as I could. Um, I had a lot of help from a guy named Jeff Wexler, um, who was the production assistant on the movie and he was it was his first movie that he worked on um he's the son of haskell wexler the cinematographer yeah and uh he he was kind of hal hal ashby's um you know sort of his his right hand man i guess you'd say his, you know he was young um his first movie he was working on but he he kind of was the jack of all trades he did everything so Jeff was kind of my go-to guy for if I had a question of something that was I couldn't figure out. Mm. So was yeah. that your first uh, experience of trying to make contact with people in Hollywood or in the film world? Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much, yeah, yeah. It, it was a new experience for me, mm. and it was interesting. It had some, you know, there there was some there was some great um, there were some really interesting fun things about it and. You know, there were some there were some things that were frustrating. I mean, when people wouldn't, you know, they don't return your calls or return your emails. You know, it's yeah, a little perplexed yeah. thing, and you're like, well, gee, what can I do now? You know. Yeah, yeah, that was why I asked because I, <clears throat> ever since I was a teenager, really, I wanted to make it in Hollywood, and then in my, I guess my, thirties was when I uh, actually began trying to. Established connections because I'd written a book and Pauline Kale had favoured it, and so it felt like there was a little bit of an opening there. And I did everything I could. I even actually physically went to Hollywood, um, and and I I continued off and on for about ten years. But it was incredible how frustrating it was, and how how yeah. in the end how utterly futile. I'm actually thankful for that uh, actually in the end. But it just I just mentioned yeah. it because uh, uh, it yeah. it really is uh, it's an uphill climb for sure just to try and get yeah. to contact the gods so to speak yeah and, and you, you have to you have to understand I mean you have to tell yourself look you know these people have a lot of people that might be wanting something from them one reason or the other you know they're they're dealing with a lot of people and if someone comes in from totally out of the blue and is like hey 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 you know <laughs> yeah. talk to me this and that the other thing you can understand why there's going to be a degree of guardedness about it you know so 
Yeah, or just but, a lack of interest because there's nothing actually in it for the for them, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. I do think. I mean, I think some of the people helped me. I mean, Tom Skira told me, you know, I called because I saw your letter, and you know, I you're writing about Hal, and Hal was just a mentor to me. And when I was starting out my career, Robert Altman and Hal Ashby were the two guys that just, you know, really helped me get going. And so, you know, he he responded because my focus was on Hal, you know, and he kind of felt, I guess, in a sense that he owed him something, you know, in that, in that way. So right, it's it's real hit and miss, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to talk about Hal in a little bit, but let's start with the movie itself I'll, I'll tell you why I'm talking to you now why I ended up getting the book and reading it and that is well t- two reasons uh, one that it was my favorite movie as as a teenager um, it was the same it's quite a, sort of incongruous because it was the same period that I discovered Clint Eastwood so uh, I'm not sure whether it was before Dirty Harry was my favorite movie or after but you know very very disparate kind of uh, Right. types of thing and so generally I was into these the violent action movies and stuff as a teenager and, and horror movies but I discovered Harold and Maud through a friend of my sister and he recommended it and then because it, it, it was on TV and I recorded it and eventually I watched it and I remember it, it was a very slow starter for me like I was quite bored to begin with and then little by little it, 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 it took, took me over and by the end of the movie I was completely enamoured of it and then, right. I, and then I showed it to my best friend the ta- at the time, who was also a Clint Eastwood uh, fanatic, and he had the same response. And it was, it was actually, I remember, it was the, the moment that it, that I knew he was getting it was, was with the, uh, when Bud Court turns to the camera when he's just done one of his fake suicides and chased off one of his dates. And this, I just found out that he improvised this, but he's 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 smiling knowingly at the camera and the Cat Stevens song. Uh, is beginning with the piano and uh, yeah, and yeah. that was the moment that my friend it, it might have been for me as well like it, it got him right? Um, right, right and so by the end of that second viewing with him he also was completely enraptured and it became our favorite movie together um, yeah. and and so that was you know it was it was it had a, a really major impact on me and then recently uh, my niece who's 20 now so it's, it's probably a little bit later than it was for me but around I would guess around 16 or 17 she discovered the movie and it became her favorite movie and she she uh, became even more I mean I was I was a pretty um, devoted kind of follower of movies there's no doubt about it but the way that my niece took to Harold and Maud was uh, off the chart really I won't even try and list the examples but uh, she she just became completely um, uh, enamoured of the movie and of Bud Court, and yeah. so so it kind of there was a a second generational thing. Right. right. Yeah, it was like something coming around again, like a planet. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been there before and it's done its cycle and then it came around again. Right. Um, so yeah, as you know, it is this movie that has this. Um, uniquely profound effect on people and it seems as though it's not a product it is a product of its time but it's not dependent on its time to have that effect like we're talking 40 45 years later and it still has this power to deeply 
impact um, a teenage girl and be a life-changing movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tried to point out in the book that, uh, you know, I, I thought that they, I think they were really wise to sort of stay away from a lot of the political um, messaging that was going on in the early 70s, and they really tried to almost go against the grain of that and make it about these people and their lives and their relation to each other and to life and death. And and as a result, it, it really gave, it has a timeless quality that's, you know, helped the movie, you know, hold up for years and years, as opposed to some of the other ones from that late 60s, early 70s period when Vietnam was going on and whatnot. And the, those are much more dated films, none of, none of which come to mind right at the moment, but... Yeah, and the countercultural ones, the ones that are promoting the, the countercultural values. Um, Harold and Maud actually wasn't really doing that, even though it intersected with some of those values, and it certainly would have appealed to the counterculture. But as you say, it wasn't actually riding on on the back of any of that. It was a more archetypal story that was was addressing you know deep psychological realities, I would say. I mean, this is in retrospect. I certainly didn't think about it at the time. I'm not sure how much I questioned. I know that, obviously, I identify with Harold as an alienated teenager, uh, somewhat obsessed with death. I think I was even then. But I also remember that Maud was the character that that I most wanted to be like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I, I thought it was interesting in researching that... uh, you know, I think Colin Higgins, the writer, he really um, took the time to develop that character. In the early drafts of the script, she's you know just a she's just a, an old la- older lady that you know gives him a kind of a you know gee you know feel better about yourself thing. But he he really um, attempted to develop a philosophy around her, and I, I was. I, it interested me to find in the um, in his collection at UCLA that he had all these pamphlets of this um, philosophy that Maud adopts. You know, he, he'd studied it. It was an actual philosophy that exists, and people out there that follow it and whatnot. And um, it had all the it had all the tenets of what Maud talks about in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know? So. It, it wasn't by accident, you know, that this character is so resonant with people. And that was theosophical? Yes, yes. Yeah. And I, I knew that, I mean, I, I knew there was something there, and nobody, as far as I knew, had ever kind of put their finger on it. And uh, some people said, oh, she's got a Buddhist philosophy. And I looked at that, and I went, nah, she doesn't exactly have a Buddhist philosophy. Um you know, so and I looked at several different sort of philosophical. I'm not a philosophy expert by any means, but you know, I looked at it and I said that you know none of these exactly fit what she does. And then when I was researching Higgins, I found these, these pamphlets that he had, and <clears throat> I looked into it and I went, "This is exactly what <laughs> this is exactly what Maud." I mean, some of the things she says come comes almost straight, you know, chapter and verse out of their their little text, you know, and um, mm-hmm. it, it was it was interesting to me that you know that that, uh, that I was able to make that connection, and um, you know I really think that's why 
the movies got such a resonance with people. It, it's um, it's based on it's based on stuff that's you know kind of kind of deep, you know. So were they written by uh, Blavatsky then? Those pamphlets were they actual excerpts from her work? They, do you know? Yeah, there was there was ex- excerpts from yeah text that she had that she had written, um, and that were part of the um, this um, Theosophical Society. Hmm. any of the, the books myself and read them or I'm not sure they're in print anymore or anything like that. Oh, oh they are. It's very, it was one of the most interesting things in your book for me was that was because I have uh, read um, Blavatsky I read The Secret Doctrine which is I don't know how many pages oh. long, 2,000 pages long and I, wow. I've even incorporated it into my own beliefs for a while until I began to see well certain aspects that I really didn't want to embrace um, but it's also um, I think it's very significant because Blavatsky if you trace back the sort of um, cultural and philosophical trends then Blavatsky in many ways was uh, the source of the new age and of the counterculture, the new age movement was post counterculture but she was really a, an enormously influential figure in terms of how her ideas were adopted and adapted by other groups and other movements and other this, that and the other and how they basically run through all of these more well-known kind of movements whether it's Est or what what have you, you know, there's countless ones, yeah. Esalen so in that regard it was like Higgins instinctively went to the source of something right. um, um, I mean, some kind of wisdom. I'm, I'm not sure what I think of Blavatsky at this point. Uh, uh, obviously, he, he, he um, distilled the essence of the most life-affirming aspects because there's a lot of Blavatsky and that's that's very complex and quite like like there's racial theories and all this stuff that would be considered pretty questionable yeah. today, right? But but Higgins was writing this this solar uh, Earth Mother solar figure who is just affirming the beingness of life or the goodness of life and it seems like it's um, it doesn't seem to belong to any kind of system I mean her Moore's wisdom seems just like common sense and uh, and it's just an embracing of, of life that was the thing that I wanted to emulate I wasn't thinking oh Maud has has figured it out or she's got this great philosophy it was just that somehow she'd discovered a way to just live in the moment and embrace life uh, unconditionally Oh yeah, no, no doubt. It absolutely works. I mean, in the in the context that he used it, um, I mean, it worked so well. And uh, the fact that you know he contrasts it with the character of Harold, who's you know totally kind of almost you feel like he's given up on everything, you know. And yeah, it's brilliant, you know. And that's that's the thing. They were they were making movies at that time. Where they were able to do these sort of uh, character studies that were that are so interesting, you know. Um, and, uh, Harold Maude really represents it very well, you know. Mm. There's, yeah, there's another aspect in the story that you didn't you didn't really write about it, but um, and that's Harold's relationship with his mother. I mean, of course, you wrote about that, but in terms of what we're talking about, the, the sort of deep psychology and. The, the archetypal nature of the story that, you know, Harold's um, inability to live and his 
attachment to death I think is inseparable from his bondage to his mother like he's actually still inside her psyche in, right. a, in a sense so she's controlling him and his only way to rebel is to reject life really and to embody this deathly kind of right. character right yeah I mean he, he literally has you know he the, the suicides themselves they don't they don't have any meaning except for is as little you know performance pieces for his mother you know yeah He's not going to do them for himself, you know, or even anybody else, you know. It's, it's got to be her that sees it. And uh, it, it's just so, you know, yeah, the, the, so simple but so so great. I mean, so memorable the way, you know, it was done. And, uh, yeah, the casting in the film of using Vivian Pickles as the mother who's just was, I don't know, it's just so right. Yeah, it's a remarkable performance. You go, you go. How did he? How did he get it so right? You know, and uh, uh, there's uh, the other interesting thing about her was the fact that it's very tough timing-wise with her because she was making she was making another movie at the time. I think it was Nicholas and Alexandria she was in, and she had a few weeks break from that film, which was a big epic um, costume picture. And uh, they had a very narrow window window of time that they were gonna, you know, that they could be in the house that they used in Hillsboro, and uh, it was a real. Apparently, it was a real, um, you know, tough because she didn't get there, and for the shoot time, you know, they were gonna have to dispense with her as the actress, which would have been tragic as as the film goes, because she kind of makes it in, in some on some levels, you know. Yeah, and they had, they had some problems with immigration. With like, wow, you know, that was that was a that was a tough. That, but you know, those those little things, you know, those are the kind of things I I wanted to, um, you know, that came out in the book that I wanted to kind of highlight. And uh, it was it was great to be able to to discover stuff like that, you know. Mm. But those little dramas that occur behind the scenes, you know that you'd never know about when you watch the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, the, that's kind of the stuff that I, I enjoyed being able to find out and put in the book. Um, but yeah, she's she's uh, she's magnificent, and it's, uh, um, it's really a great part of it. Has she passed away now? Uh, no, she's, she's still, she's still uh, alive. She lives in England, and um, I, didn't, I didn't really make any attempts to get in touch with her because I... I had no clue how to. <laughs> <laughs> right, where to begin? Yeah, I um, yeah, she's no, but she's she's still with us. Yeah, mm, yeah, remarkable. Ninety something years old. But, well, well, so how many times have you seen Harold and Maud now? Then would you say as a guest? Uh, I've I've seen it um, I've seen it several dozen times. I I haven't seen it as many times as a lot of the people who um, are are huge devotees and. You know, some people say they've seen it hundreds of times, and uh, I can't, um, I can't say that. I, I, you know, for me, I really just I wanted to get the story behind the the film, and I love it. But for me, it's it's one of you know, it's one of many films that are among that are among my favorites. So um, it's not it's not my absolute favorite movie of all time. Um, I'm a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. I, you know, but 
that's how that's how I really kind of came into film study was um, through Hitchcock and uh, growing up with those movies, you know, Vertigo and Psycho and North by Northwest movies like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm and then I, I ended up at film school, of course, but uh, um, I have seen the movie many times and under many different situations. And kind of like you, I kind of um, especially when I was younger, I would sort of bring bring people to the movie. You know, I would, I, you know, if I knew somebody, I'd say, oh, you know, let's go see this movie. You know, you've got to see it with me. Yeah, well, isn't that, I mean, that is how Harold and Maud actually has become the phenomenon it has become, is largely through word of mouth, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, got popular on college campuses, it got shown, um, just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely grassroots type of um, phenomenon, you know, it's, People seeing it, telling their friends, bringing their friends. Um, yeah, I mean, that is the that is the kind of incredible part of it. It's not something that um, I mean, it was an absolute flop when it came out, you know. But it's just been years and years of people seeing it and loving it and and uh, relating to it and kind of bringing bringing people to it, like I said, you know, and then them embracing it. Yeah, and everybody has their Harold and Maud moment. You know, there's the thing in the movie yeah. that stands out for them, and they'll tell somebody else that moment. And it's it's the quality of, with which people speak about it. I think because people recommend yeah. movies all the time, but right. you know, when I was told about this movie by my sister's friend, there must have been something about the way in which he talked about it that yeah. communicated obviously his his passion for it and that that there's something um well to use the modern term it's viral it's infectious it's contagious is that right, pa- right. passion yeah we we had a uh, we had an event a few months ago at the western railway museum where they have the the rail car uh that was used as mod's home and we we had an event there we had a book signing event um with uh also a gentleman has has reproduced the Jaguar hearse um, that Harold drove, um, and so that he he brought that there, and I did a book signing, and people could tour the rail car, and I was just um, you know I was blown away at the number of people that came from all over. It's in Northern California, and people that came and dressed up, and you know, yeah, yeah, right. I was like, wow, this is. This is crazy, you know. This is, it was really cool. It was it was fun, you know. Didn't the uh, Jaguar hearse get get driven off the cliff at the end? Oh yeah, it, it did. This was a reproduction. Oh, that okay. A gentleman named Ken Roberts who was very interested in cars and film cars. He decided to do a fully accurate reproduction of this of the car, which is was demolished. Yeah. Um, and it's he spent a ton of money on it, and it's really kind of an amazing thing because you have to fuse together a jaguar with a hearse. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh-huh. But um, <laughs> it's very interesting. He takes it around, and he shows it at car shows, and he shows it at events. The week after we did our thing, he took it out to Pacifica, which was where the car actually went over the cliff, 
and um, they had a thing out there called the Fog Festival, which is it's just a community event. It's not a film thing necessarily or related to the movie, but he, he took it out there and he said he had a ton of a ton of interest of people at, you know, taking pictures and relating to him how the movie and they loved it, blah, 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 you know, so. And this includes younger generations, I presume. It's not just people who are... Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of people my age and a little bit older that saw it when it first came out. But yeah, it's their kids. It's, it's their grandkids, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's people showing it to their, to their kids and grandkids and, and them taking part in it too. I uh, thinking that the uh, the trajectory of Harold and Maud, I mean, it was unusual for its time in terms of, uh, okay, so it was a movie that was unlikely to get made and was a gamble for the studios, Paramount, Robert Evans was the risk-taking, you know, youngest yeah. mogul or whatever ever, and so on. Yeah. So it had, the, it had the right climate for it to happen, but... Um, there was there was the hope and even some expectation that this could be a great hit. Then yeah. then it was as though the studio backed away from their own product because they marketed it so poorly that it was guaranteed to fail, uh, and yeah. it and it did. And then there was this thing of the word of mouth, you know, word getting around and 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 repertory cinemas or just normal cinemas just playing it over and over again. And so there was the movie yeah. actually had a life of its own beyond. The studio, the, the you know the the financial apparatus that was supposed to be supporting it, it was as if it right. was able to live off that support or independent of that support system. It had its own life, and so then it eventually became a cult film, and then it was re-released, and and so on and so forth. So that that phenomenon is rare enough even for that period. But would you say that it would be as kind of unheard of now like that that trajectory just doesn't happen anymore does it with movies or or yeah it, it doesn't it doesn't i mean it's it, it's different now of course because the entire landscape of film distribution is is totally different um you have the element of, of home video that didn't exist at all back then um and so now you get movies that get a second life on you know, on home video because that's a way for people to see movies that don't that aren't huge hits or that you know they don't necessarily see in the in the theater. Um, so that that aspect, of course, didn't exist with Harold and Maude. But I did want to point out, yeah, in the book that it did benefit from the fact that because the uh, film distribution was changing at the time. And that there were a lot of these theaters that had sort of been left behind by the transition to big multiplexes. Mm. There was one theater in Minnesota that ran it two straight years, that ran it for like 1,900 straight showings or something like that. And this was a movie theater that had been, you know, kind of left behind as they converted the old cinemas to multiplexes. They would just add screens and build the theater out, you know. Hmm. But um, some of them, you know, a lot of them didn't have a, didn't have the benefit of that. They were they were just kind of movie theaters that were not just single screens. They weren't doing much anymore. They weren't doing much business. Those are the those are the theaters that really were showing Harold and Maude. 
in the 1972 to 1974 period like crazy, you know. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if it hadn't had those theaters to access, I mean, if it had been released in 1951, let's say, instead of 71, it would have kind of missed the boat because there wouldn't have been that distribution channel for that, for the film. Um, yeah. So in a sense, it got, it got lucky in that way, kind of timing-wise. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting because it's also it's, it's those theaters also had um, they benefited from movies like Harold and Maude because it gave them a new function, just as their old function was was becoming obsolete. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you know, would you get a movie like it nowadays? No, but you you know you do get oddball movies that people pick up on. That they don't get when they're first released, and that you know, they pick they pick up on them later. But they're it's just it's just a little differently. You know, now it's you know home video and pay per view, and you know. And the community is on the internet rather than next. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the streaming and it's, yeah, you're you do you know people are able to talk to talk to each other easier now. Um, you know. You can tell somebody, you can put something online and somebody sees it halfway around the world, you know. So there's, there is a communication that wasn't there, you know, back then. Hmm. But it, and I guess in a sense that makes it even more amazing that the movie did take off as it did when you really didn't have any... It, it literally had to spread spread word of mouth. You know, it couldn't be viral at all. You know, it had to it had to be people telling other people. You know, yeah, face to face, pretty much. But but Paramount, to its credit, I mean, they did re-release the movie several times. I mean, they didn't they didn't throw it on the ash ash can. They didn't you know burn all the prints or some of the other things that studios have done to movies. And uh, they did you know figure it out when they realized the market was happening for it and they several re-releases of it and the movie eventually got into the black and uh, made money uh, so for, for what that was worth so have you have you thought about how much the taboo aspect of, of the movie was responsible for its impact because like obviously it's about sex and death and uh, right. Death is a taboo anyway. You shape it really, unless it's just James Bond killing people. But I mean, really, a real confrontation with death that Harold and Maud is about—that's a taboo always. But then the sex is a taboo because it's a twenty-year-old and an eight-year-old, um, which is kind of—I mean, it's kind of almost like the least important aspect of the movie in some ways. Or it's not one I think about very much when I think about Harold and Maud. It's weird, you know right. that 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 is somehow shocking and it still is I suppose I mean there hasn't been anything equivalent to that uh, right. in terms of improbable relationships yes yes yeah I mean it, it, you know it, it worked for the movie and against it I mean at first it worked against it because it was so um, it was so oddball you know the um, various things uh, what you've mentioned, I mean, it turned a lot of people off, of course, at first. Um, the mm. early 70s was still a time when people were a little bit, you know, um, yeah, it was just more of a straight-laced time, I guess you could say. The, the, the walls were coming down, but they hadn't come down 
it all all the way. And um, yeah, so it worked against it at first, and then it started, I think, working for it because it was so it was so different. And but you're right, the sex the sex part of it is not um, a major component. I mean, their their relationship develops first, you know, and he obviously falls in love with her person first and then it comes you know as a secondary part of it but it was a big issue when they were making the movie you know how much of this mm. how much of this do we show you know? absolutely a yeah. lot of studio resistance obviously to showing to showing anything but uh, yeah it's almost as if they had to have it because otherwise it would have seemed that they'd backed away from that and I think that's right. true. True, that it is. You know, you don't want to just deny the sexual element, but but it's right. also as though it's kind of incidental to their relationship somehow. I mean, I guess it would be for her, for more. She's not really going to be that interested in sex in her eighties, I don't suppose. Yeah, you know, generally. Yeah. So it was. I suppose it was necessary for Harold's initiation. Right. Right. More than anything. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. Um, you, you have to, you know, you have to have it. It's, it's part of it. Um, it was not in the original script, as I recall, when he was writing it as a student film. Um, but um, it was, you know, when he when he expanded it and it became a feature length, and uh, he included that he included that aspect of it. So. Um, yeah, I, I do think that um, it was it was a you know it was a tricky it was a tricky part of it for them. It was uh, something that you know they had to deal with. But uh, for the for the trailers, they they had the trailers apparently showed more of the footage that was shot. Um, mm, that's strange, isn't it? Yeah, and that caused the studio to completely pull the trailers and not use them. But, <laughs> but they must have decided to put it in in the first place, or at least allowed yeah. it. So <laughs> there was some yeah. gamble that they realized was mis misconceived. Right. right. Uh, yeah. So it was bizarre, yeah. actually. Yeah. It, it was, you know, you had the entire thing of, People making the movie were really kind of in, in the counterculture, and the people paying for the movie, you know, producing the movie were were not. They were viewing it as a as a commercial um, endeavor. So there was a there was a pull back and forth on that. Mm. But to some extent, I think the movie was a victim of it by virtue of the fact that it was then not. Advertised quite the way it could have been. Mm. Well, it's a, a difficult movie to sell, there's no doubt. Even yeah. today, it would be difficult. Yeah. I think that doesn't fall into any categories. <laughs> no. no, and I think that that's actually what. I mean, of course, that's what makes it unique. But I think it's also what is inseparable from its impact. Like you were saying that there are other movies that you like as much, and uh, for me, it's it's true more so and more true in a way than just that which is that 
if I if I were to make a list of the ten best movies or the movies I consider the ten greatest movies, Harold and Maud wouldn't be on it because I don't mm. think of it as a massively accomplished movie. But oh. but what it achieves is is something beyond technique or innovative style or it's it's just the emotional and the dare right. I say spiritual impact of it, which yeah. transcends the the qualities of the movie itself I think in many ways the movie is um, I think you even said quite conventional I, w- I wouldn't necessarily use that word but it, you know, it's not that remarkable scene by scene and uh, right. not, not like Vertigo say or, or these movies that we recognize have just sort of changed the art form um, right, right. It has something else, and it's quite mysterious to me because Colin Higgins just doesn't. He's not a remarkable film figure. I, I have no interest in anything he did after that, although I've seen <laughs> seen a lot of it. Um, it's like he he uh, he struck gold there, and yeah. it's kind of mysterious how he managed to create this this such remarkable and unique uh, expression of of. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's um. He's he's an interesting he's an interesting figure and uh, his a lot of his his movies were well I mean they, you know a lot of them did quite well yeah. commercially after that but uh, it's yeah Harold and Maude stands apart from stands apart from the rest of them you know it's uh, they're the rest of them are quite a bit more conventional and commercial seeming yeah. Uh, it was, I think, it was a product of his uh, his age at that time. I mean, he was in graduate school. He was trying to, you know, come up with something that could be, you know, quite unique. And at the same time, I think he did realize at some point that it was, it had a lot of potential. You know, it had a lot of commercial potential. Um, when he expanded it, I, I don't, I'm sure he didn't realize or, you know, it was as anybody when it got picked up and made into a, a major feature film, mm. you know, going from student film to, to feature <laughs> starring Ruth Gordon and, you know. Yeah, that, that that's very unusual in itself, even for that period, I would say, because you have this Roger yeah. Corman school where just nobody's get to make movies, but for a nobody to get their script made into a movie by a major studio is very, very rare. Yeah. It, you know, it was one of the things I wanted to cover in the book, and, and found out. Of, hello. Yeah, okay. still here. I, I found out about as, as much about it as I could, but uh, you know, his his uh, just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and working for these people who were in the in the film community, and to be able to get to get the script to go straight to more or less Robert Evans' desk, you know, and. I do think there was also an element of the fact that at the time so many movies were coming out of the woodwork and becoming quite unusual movies were becoming hits that the studios didn't understand exactly what the formula was mm. you know but for a movie like Midnight Cowboy to become an enormous hit and I, I use that quite a bit as an example and Easy Rider you know these movies just came totally out of the blue and they made millions and millions of dollars. So I think when Evans got the script, he looked at it and he went, you know, I better buy this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I think he, I think it wasn't even so much that he loved the script. I think he thought I better buy this because somebody else might get it. Yeah. And uh, you know, a year from now, I don't want to be explaining to somebody why I passed on this thing that became a, a sensation. You know, right? <laughs> sort of sad to think, but I mean that that is you know I I would assume that's how a lot of these things happen. You know? Yeah, yeah. Back yeah. then, anyway, not so much now. I don't suppose. But. Uh, I, I mean, from what I know of the film industry now, um, you know, there, there's there's kind of there's kind of two kinds of movies that get made: the huge budget special effects spectacle, you know, that we all hear about that costs a couple hundred million dollars to make, you know, and then there's there is sort of this indie circuit of movies that are, you know, much more akin to a movie like Harold and Maude, you know. Mm-hmm. And some of them, some of them are financed by film, major film studios, or they're financed by arms of major film studios. But yeah. you know, they don't spend a lot of money on them, and they put them into the festival circuit, and they hope to, uh, you know, strike gold when if the movie connects with audiences. You know, so mm. it does kind of, you know, there is that element of it that still exists. But I mean, for Paramount, this was, you know, pretty pretty major of a movie. It was a lower budget, you know. Million and a half dollars. It was lower budget on the relative scale of ones compared to The Godfather and some of the other ones they were doing at the time. But you know, it's still one of their films. Still one of the ten or fifteen main releases of the right. year, I would think. No? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So that that, that it is it is it is quite rare. Yeah. Hmm. So. Um, what was your interest in Hal Ashby? Was it primarily because of Harold and Maud, or was it independent? Obviously, it wouldn't be independent. But how much of it, it, was, it was due to Harold and Maud? It, it was. It was somewhat. You know, it was somewhat due to Harold and Maud. It was just due to the fact that when I when I happened to be going to a lot of movies when I was in high school and college, that was his. That was his golden era. You know, that was his time um, when he was making a lot of his great films. And I just happened to see Harold and Maude, Shampoo, The Last Detail, and then a little later coming home and being there, you know, back to back to back to back almost. And it was the fact that not many people were talking about this guy, I mean, even back then, mm. who was making all these great movies. Um, he was, you know, given some acclaim. I mean, he was, you know, he did get an Academy Award nomination for coming home. But he was kind of a relatively under the radar figure even back in the seventies. Um, you know, compared to Polanski or some of the other ones, Coppola. Mm-hmm. You know, those those guys were more um uh well known. And so from just for me as a fan, as a film watcher, you know, to recognize, gee, here's this guy Hal Ashby, you know. The movies are great and they they were kinda of similar. You know, they the movies themselves weren't that similar, but the characters in them were similar. Mm. The characters in them had sort of similar relations somewhat to each other, and you have this kind of... Um, a lot of his main characters are like the Harold character. They're sort of naive kind of um, people who've been sort of um, just... I don't know, they you know... They've been hurt, sort of, by the world, you know, and they're they're kind of um, I don't know. They have they have trouble dealing with things, you know. So they're they're going through a lot of 
problems and they're kind of anti-heroes in a sense. So, you know, he, he just, I don't know if it was he was picking those scripts or if they were coming to him because he was good at doing those kind of movies, but, you know, back to back to back, he made all these unique, interesting films with these really interesting characters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just always loved loved the guy and, um, um, you know, thought that he got underrated quite a bit. He did die quite young, kind of before his time, so I think that was part of it. And um, But um, a few years ago, a young writer named Nick Dawson wrote a biography of, of Hal Ashby, which was quite overdue, and um, when that came out, I was, you know, very glad to see that somebody had, had done it, you know. Um, uh, I wished I'd done it, but, you know, he, he was the one that sat down and and wrote the book, and um, it's a great book. He's really well written. He researched it meticulously. So, but that that kind of helped me, you know, prompt me to go, you know, gee, you know, you should you should figure out how to do something about this guy too, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that happens, but it does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the impression so. the impression I get, I have of Hal Ashby, and it, it's partly based on deduction and observation but it's also partially based on things I've read and other people's opinions I guess I think it was Peter Biskind because he, he includes stuff about Hal Ashby in, in Easy Riders Raging yeah. Ball I know that book's been criticised as being a lot of you know exaggerations and stuff but I wouldn't know how to address that but I think he his take on Hal Ashby was that he was a casualty of the Hollywood system that it, it ate him up and spat him out what, what do you think about that view of Ashby well I think it, it you know Peter Biskind's book I mean he's he's writing a book that somewhat is I don't want to say sensationalizing but I mean it to some extent he's got to kind of put put a, a, a story like that on someone like Hal's life so that it can be, you know, we can read it and go, oh, that's what happened. He was, you know. Like he's he writing was, a novel almost. Yeah, kind of, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it oversimplifies it in a sense, you know. And I think that was why it was good that, that Nick wrote his book because it, it did counter some of that. I mean, I think it was good that, in the Easy Riders Raging Bulls, that there was some attention focused to Hal because hadn't there hadn't been much written about him, anything hardly written about him. So I think it was good that he wrote something about him. Um, but I, I do think that the biography cor- corrected some of the um, inaccuracies. I mm. mean, I think there were some inaccuracies there. Um, Hal, Hal Ashby was just a guy who who he bucked the system, and when Things were going right, they went right, but when things were going wrong, they went really wrong, you know. Mm. Because he didn't he didn't make any he made a lot of enemies, you know. I guess that was that's a way to look at it, you know. He 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 ruffled a lot of feathers because he was always wanting to do it, you know, his way. And when his way was working, it went great, but when his way wasn't working, it went he got no second chances, you know, whatsoever. Mm. But that, I mean, that general description of a filmmaker who wants it his way and makes enemies and stuff, and it certainly reminds me of Sam Peckinpah, who's one I've looked at 
a lot. Um, and, yeah. he, and you could also say he was a casualty of the Hollywood system in a, in a different way, but in a similar way, actually. And in terms of his best films were sort of lumped together in a relatively short period, and then they just got worse and worse, and then he self-destructed yeah. through drugs. So there's there's some parallels there. Um, but so, I mean, one of the yeah, things there, I... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's definite, there's definite parallels. I mean, I think... I think how Ashby was more worked better in the in the filmmaking system than Peckinpah did. I think Peckinpah was a bit more of a, a rebel, if that's a word or not. You know, he, he made enemies. I mean, he 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 consciously made people into enemies. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think how I would have liked to have you know not you know had those situations arise for him, but. Um, you know, they did. So. so, but there's directors like Altman and Scorsese, and I'm not sure about Coppola, but maybe to some extent all of those different figures in the 70s, um, of which Ashby can be seen as one, albeit one with less obvious personality marked on the films, they, they all had this kind of rebellious thing, and they were always fighting with the studios to get their vision. Uh, and yet, Many of those survived, at least as you pointed out in your book, to have a, you know, a, a second act. They might have lost their way for a period, but then they managed to fight their way back to something. And Ashby, right. Ashby and Peckinpah didn't. So, right. I, I, I mean, it suggests to me that it has something to do with, because um, one thing about Peckinpah is very interesting. Uh, was that he, he he created a persona that was very ornery and masculine and macho, but actually he was an incredibly sensitive person, and I think that that's what destroyed him. Not not just the, I mean, the effort of keeping up a persona that wasn't him, of course, would drain somebody, but the fact that he was so sensitive was that he he just got so badly wounded through the process of just trying to constantly battle the studios and battle for his vision that in the end he. He died of those wounds, so I think yeah. that's the sense I got with Ashby, Ashby, rightly or wrongly, that he he was just more, more sensitive uh, yeah. than some of these other figures who just kind of develop rhino skins and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure with Coppola, I'm sure that he he was able to develop a, a thicker skin and uh, than someone like Hal Ashby or uh, Sam Peckinpah. Um, you know, I, I do think, yeah, those two probably were were somewhat victims of their of their personality not not functioning too well. Um, but I think with Hal, it just you know he he just got cancer. <laughs> you know? There's and, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, once he once he got sick, you know, he 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 passed away, um, you know, fairly quickly. I, th- I think if he hadn't gotten sick, I think he would have been able to get a um, a renaissance somewhat like some of these other guys have mm. you know I, but I, I think that I think Altman and, and uh, Coppola and you know, Polanski went to Europe of course because he had to but yeah. um, I mean I think those guys uh, they were able to they were able to take it a little bit better um, but I, how I mean from all evidence he was you know he was trying to get things in line and um, you know, hoping to get some pictures that you know could could bring him back, and 
it, it was taste changed quite a bit between the 70s and the 80s, and all all of them had hard had a hard time. In the 80s, adjusting. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the 80s, the pictures were, the audiences just really quickly shifted to wanting different different movies. You know, they wanted E.T. and they wanted um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars. You know, and those those were radically different pictures than than Harold and Maude and um, the Wild Bunch. All those other ones, you know. So big, big change, and uh, it was tough. But he's, he's a, Hal Ashby's an interesting figure, and he's really, he has somewhat been embraced, you know, now in the last few years by um, some people. There's um, a documentary is being made about about his life, and uh, I think that that's probably going to come out pretty soon. And. Mm. Uh, uh, a filmmaker in Los Angeles, Amy Scott, is making a documentary about uh, Hal's career. With the, um, she has the, you know, the estate of his, uh, his estate is working with her, and um, so I think that's going to be very good. She's gotten a lot of um, good interviews with people, and I think that's going to help really elevate his, um, his image, so to speak. Do they have? Um, home home movie footage and documentary footage of the film sets and that kind of thing to work with. Um, I I don't know. She's done a lot of interviews, and I don't know what kind of archival. I doubt there's much home movie stuff, but I probably there is yeah stuff that was shot on on sets, and I do know that there's there's a lot of um, there is some existence of you know multiple takes and outtakes and things like that um, for some of the films. Um, I don't know if they exist that much for Harold and Maude, but I know like being there, there's a lot of outtake footage of Peter Sellers doing stuff, and I'm sure they have access to um, those kind of things. So I, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, an interesting project. Mm. Have you seen any of the Harold and Maude deleted scenes? Has anyone seen? I, I haven't, no. Yeah. There's no DVD for that. <laughs> no, I don't. I, you know, I think, I think that a lot of that stuff it, it was cut down quite a bit because it was um, the first cut of the movie was three hours long. Yeah. So you know, I guess a lot of that stuff is just uh, kind of goes the way of, you know, they don't they didn't preserve it back then. Right. Mm. Uh, that's unfortunate, but um, anyway, I, th- I think that you know, there's. There's a lot going on now of um, younger people embracing these new Hollywood films, and so I think that's a, that's a great thing mm. for, for old people like me, you know, who remember them. <laughs> yeah. So what's next for you, Jim? Uh, are you going to write more books, or is this a one-off? Uh, you know that that's a good that's a good question. I'm I'm kind of uh, semi-retired now, and I I am thinking about some other projects, but I don't have anything uh, written in in stone right at this time. I haven't started working on anything, so um, I've I've had a couple of uh, had a couple of thoughts of things that I might do, but um, nothing nothing yet that I really put down on paper or started to do any research on. So. I think I, I I do want to do I do want to do something because it was a great experience with the Harold Mod book and um you know I 
going to give something else a shot, but nothing that I've started on right at this point. You're waiting for the inspirational moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just um, the Harold the Mod thing was something that I really wanted to do for a long time, and uh, to write a book and get it published. And uh, at this point, it. If I'm going to jump in and do it again, I really want to make a commitment to it. And so, you know, really do it right. And uh, so I'm kind of taking my time a little bit at this point before I settle on something. But I think there will be something. Another movie that you would want to look more deeply into, you think? I think so, yeah. Uh, my wife and I have just relocated to the Reno, Nevada area within the last couple of months. We were living in the, the San Francisco Bay area which is part of the reason I focused on Harold and Maude, because it was, it was right there where we were living. But um, now we've relocated to Reno, so I'm up here, and I've thought about the movie The Misfits, which is a very interesting movie, which was shot up in this northern Nevada area. Mm. And uh, it's even older than Harold and Maude, of course. It came out in 1961, so... <laughs> um, that's crossed my mind as a possibility, but at this point I haven't done anything about it. That's the movie that the whole cast died after making, isn't it? Um, well, Marilyn Monroe died and Clark Gable died. Clark Gable died shortly after the movie finished production, yeah. Marilyn died about And Monty Quest died. He died about five years later, okay. I think. So not immediately, no. <laughs> but still it had that sort of... Uh, aura around it I remember as the Misfits yeah. curse yeah I like that movie a lot yeah it's an interesting one yeah it's another sort of interesting one that's uh, got an interesting some interesting stories behind it I think uh, yeah it's a Misfit movie in fact <laughs> Quite. yeah <laughs> thanks for talking to me today Jim and uh, my pleasure if people want to read their book they can go to amazon.com or the local bookshop or whatever, however they have to do to find it. But, uh, yeah, it's mostly uh, sold online. Um, uh, McFarland, the publisher, is uh, mostly online, so that's that's the best way to find it, is to go to Amazon. Um, and it's available in a Kindle version. It's available on Barnes & Noble's website. It's got a Nook version, so... Great. Uh, okay, well, thanks, Jim. Okay, Jason. Okay.